This is The Music Show. I'm Andrew Ford. On today's program, we have a cappella music inspired by the Uluru Statement from the Heart, and Philadelphia's DIY rock star Alex G emerges from his bedroom. But we're starting with a track to honour the legendary saxophonist Pharaoh Sanders, who died this week at the age of 81. This is Tembi. It's from the 1971 album of the same name. That's Pharaoh Sanders playing saxophone, Michael White violin, Lonnie Liston Smith piano and Cecil McBee on bass. And they're all playing percussion. Pharaoh Sanders came to prominence in the 1960s with John Coltrane and some of Coltrane's more experimental music. As a saxophonist, Pharaoh Sanders was best known for his extended playing techniques, things like overblowing. In the last few years, he found new audiences. Uh, last year, in fact, a collaboration with Floating Points, the electronic music producer, and the London Symphony Orchestra, and an album called Promises, which, oddly enough, is more or less how Tembi translates. The song company's Anthony Pitts invited two composers to create a set of musical responses to the Uluru Statement from the Heart. They're Elizabeth Shepherd, a Yamatji and Gundungara woman, and Sonia Hollowell, who's a Darawal woman. And in addition to being composers, they're both of them singers. They write terribly different music from each other, and they took different approaches to the task, as we'll hear. But let's begin with the end of Elizabeth Shepherd's suite, Kuranjin.
Kudabuja Heartland, the final movement of Kuranjin, music by Elizabeth Shepherd, performed by Ensemble Offspring. Uh, it'll be out on uh, the 11th of November as part of Ensemble Offspring's Narabaria album. And uh, Elizabeth Shepherd, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the composers of Songs from the Heart, and she joins me now in the Music Show studio together with Sonia Hollowell. Welcome back to the Music Show, Sonia. Thank you very much. And welcome, Elizabeth. I'm delighted to be here. You've been brought together uh, by this commission from the Song Company. Maybe, Elizabeth, you could tell us whose idea the whole thing was. Well, I got a, a phone call from Anthony Pitts, the artistic director of the Song Company, inviting me to compose music in response to the Uluru Statement from the Heart. This was late 2020 and the commission was finalised in mid-2021. Yeah, and I accepted straight away because um, it's just just such a wonderful opportunity to work with a wonderful group of intercultural people that include Aboriginal people like Sonia and Elias Wilson, who's an opera tenor. So we've got a, a cooperative group working together on a great document that needs to be celebrated. And Sonia, were you part of this from the beginning as well? Yes, I was, yeah. And did you have any pause between being asked the question by Anthony and saying yes? No. No, because the brief was so open, you know, I wasn't expected to represent the statement in any kind of literal way. I could just respond in any kind of way that I wanted. And I think because it was so open, I had no, yeah, nothing stopping me saying yes. Yes, but an open brief can Mm. also sometimes be a difficulty for a composer when you're told you can do anything you want you think, well, what am I going to do? And sometimes your, mm. a narrow brief can be useful. Did, did Anthony give you any ideas at all in, in terms of making a response? I mean, you knew you were writing for voices, of course. No, he, he really didn't. And um, I'm not intimidated by that kind of openness. I kind of need it. I thrive on that sort of thing. But, I mean, there's always, you know, you always sort of have these initial responses to things and they're often instinctive sort of responses. So I just use those as jumping off points and then the process just sort of naturally unfolds. And has the idea of the piece changed with that unfolding? Yes. Elizabeth, for you too? (laughs) Yes, yes. It's it's, uh, grown like topsy. It's um, really developed. We started off looking at artwork related to the statement, talking to elders. Yeah, we called in Auntie Leanne Tobin to talk to about the, the Darig culture in Sydney, and um, I talked to Christopher Sainsbury, who's my supervisor at ANU, and also to the Noongar elders, who I'm uh, connected with in the West, have just returned from there, actually, talking to the uh, New Norcia community about the music. So all this consultation comes first for me. You two come from such different musical backgrounds, (laughs) except that... You both are singers. Uh, yeah. But I wonder how you went about working with each other, alongside each other, together. I'm not quite sure even how to phrase the question. Tonya, maybe you'd like to answer this. Well, 
We actually have in common a love for sacred liturgical kind of music. And before I started doing all this improvised experimental stuff, I was actually focusing on early music and singing with the song company. So we do actually have that in common, but we just have a lot of other sort of points of commonality as well. And then our points of differences, uh, I think they're just opportunities for us to learn from each other. We've been allowed to be very distinct from one another in terms of our, if we want to have a political position on anything or if our artistic responses can be as diverse as they want to be. And I think that Anthony setting that up from the start has facilitated a really nice environment for us to work together. Yes. Mm. And have you found that your approach has changed um, working alongside Sonia? It's become more collaborative. I'm a person who was, I'm an older person. I was brought up in the post-war generation and um, I'm very attached to notation (laughs) and prescriptive notation. But um, working with Sonia and the Son Company has broadened that out slightly. I'm still attached to notation. (laughs) And also I'm a cantor, I'm a church cantor, and it has an element of improvisation in it that I have used with some tones, but also um, it's educated me in the oratorio tradition, hymn traditions, psalm traditions. I use that experience in this project to set the texts. But the collaborative side of being able to do responsive music that includes improvisation and Sonia's approach has influenced me on that. And what about you, Sonia? (laughs) Have you found that you have been using more notation than you might otherwise have done? Well, actually, this time, yes. Initially, my idea was that A lot of the scores would be kind of graphic scores, textual scores, concept-based kind of stuff, not necessarily using Western notation, but not necessarily trying to avoid it either. But what's resulted is the vast majority of my music is very, very heavily notated down to like the tiniest detail. But there are still these moments in the scores where I've erased bars and left things open. So there's still these points of indeterminacy in the scores where the singers can have that extra agency to sort of co-compose. But yeah, lots of notation, which I wasn't expecting. You're listening to The Music Show. I'm talking to Sonia Hollowell and uh, also Elizabeth Shepherd. And together they are composing a work for the song company, Songs from the Heart, um, the heart being the, a reference to the statement from the heart, the Uluru statement from the heart. You don't just come from different backgrounds, musically speaking, of course. You come from opposite ends of the country and different peoples. So how does that aspect work, would you say, Elizabeth? Well, the Noongar aspect for me um, came through my mother and... She taught me what I know of the country. How I compose is related to country. I get the melodies from my heritage, 
what my mother taught me. And, of course, Noongar countries in southwest Western Australia. And my mum was a woman of the West who found her way to the eastern states, but then, at the end of her life, went back there. And we took her back and um, we got reintroduced to the culture. And it's had a great effect on my music. So everything that I've composed about the statement comes from that heritage. Without that heritage, this music wouldn't exist. But then living over here in the eastern states, I've also connected to the Darug culture and the culture of Western Sydney and through the the song company and Ngarabaria, I met Sonia and this intercultural music making between Aboriginal cultures is an area that hasn't had much exploration. Generally we stick to our own, you know, music of our own country and in this case we've done that too but it started a, a conversation that is intercultural in an Aboriginal sense as well as with the song company so it's intercultural from the migrant point of view and or the immigrant point of view and the Aboriginal point of view. Three-way conversation. Sonia, maybe you could say uh, something about this from your point of view. My indigeneity is in itself intersectional because I'm not only Dharawal, uh, Wadi Wadi from like around the Wollongong kind of area, but also I have blood from the Inuit um, up north around Alaska. So... Yeah, different continent. So that in itself complicates things. And so I I often find these sorts of questions quite hard to answer. What of my art do I attribute to this part of my culture or that part of my culture? I think it's hard to sort of draw a direct link necessarily. Although sometimes I do hear, I guess as a singer, there are times when I hear certain approaches to my sound or certain tone colours and things that I can trace back to these different cultural influences that are inside me. But as for the composing work, it's very hard for me to answer that question. I think it's just, um, it's almost like for me having to answer the question, how does being a female show up in my music? But does that the, make sense? It does. Yes, uh, uh, it's and, like and, it's so and inherent. It's uh, really it difficult w- for me to. I would understand it in in almost any other situation, except in the context of this project. Surely yeah. you're being forced to think about it. Well, I'm not contriving any cultural signifiers, if that makes sense. I'm just creating work that I like the sound of. And there's a good chance that's not going to register to people on the other end as quote-unquote Aboriginal, you know. And that's, that's actually something that I like to challenge, you know, if my work doesn't contain particular signifiers that people expect of so-called Aboriginal music, is it still just as Aboriginal? So, yeah, my work doesn't necessarily signal to people that it's by an Aboriginal person, also because it's often quite abstract in and of itself, so you're not necessarily going to even hear 
things, cultural kind of um, references in a literal sense. So it can be hard to pick up those um, signs. But I think it's, it's all in there, whatever it is. <laughs> I think this is the moment that we should listen to some of your music uh, and people can see, see if they can hear it. Yeah, yep. That was an extract from Ply Music by Sonia Hollowell. And on today's music show, Sonia is my guest, along with Elizabeth Shepherd. And we're talking about their forthcoming project, Songs from the Heart, for the Song Company. It was the idea of the Song Company's artistic director, Anthony Pitts, who has lots of good ideas like this. The words of the Uluru Statement from the Heart are so beautiful, already kind of musical, I wonder how you approached working with them, Elizabeth? Well, by praying with them. I'm a Benedictine oblate and I do a lot of prayer and I treated this statement as a prayer and meditative text and it spoke to me. So I wrote down what emerged from my prayer. A lot of my music is a reflection of this great document Then there were sections of it that I focused on to give my personal response. 
So I did some laments. One's called Mialgin Tear, Teardrops. Mialgin is the word for teardrops in Noongar. That's a lament that is just crying, really. Mourning the sadness, but then looking forward to the future and the children. The restoration of the future is very much tied up with the families, the children keeping the families together and being positive about that. That's all reflected in the statement. So I I connected my emotions in my own personal experience to what is said in the statement. One of my pieces is Ngala Maman, the Noongar prayer. And I thought, well, that is connected for me to the statement. It's a response one of my responses to the statement. And the other thing I did, which I regard as a real step forward, not only for me but for or another friend, I reconnected with Ruby Neal, who's Narendra woman. She lives at Yulara. I met her at Eora Aboriginal College and we we wrote two very small songs together when we were studying music there. And Ruby is a great guitarist and singer and I thought this is really important to put some Aranda music in there. So I asked Anthony, could we put these two little songs called As I Walk and Keep Guard of Our Dreams into the production and he's done that. And we'll be FaceTiming with her during the rehearsal so she can hear these songs sung by the song company. I'm just thrilled that that's happening for her. Sonia Hollowell, what about mm. you? Reading through the, the statement, did you get musical ideas immediately? Or Yeah. There were certain phrases that were particularly powerful that maybe conjured an image straight away or that felt really conceptual for the purposes of trying to respond artistically. Can you give us an example? Um, Like the phrase, this is the torment of our powerlessness. So that in itself, I mean, that just kind of was just like a knife through me and I couldn't pass that up really and I wanted other people to, to feel the weight of that as well. So that's become a title for one of the pieces. Never Extinguished, which is, you know, talking about our sovereignty and parts of the statement that talked about our children and our duty to them, that became a concept for one of the pieces. But I haven't necessarily set all of the text to music. So my pieces feature words from the statement itself as well as some of my own poetry it's a combination. Since you got the call from Anthony, there's been a change of government, a change of approach, change of attitude to the Uluru Statement from the Heart. I wonder whether that's changed the way you have been working. It's broadened my approach in that from what Senator Dodson said, that everyone should be heard. Everyone's views on the statement should be heard. We should start a conversation. So I see the role of our project, and I think Sonia would agree, that the role of 
um, musicians in general is to open things up, to keep the conversation going. And so we've represented a wide range of views in our music, not any particular faction. Mm. I thought thought that was really important to do that. Yep. You do agree. <laughs> agree. <laughs> yeah. And I I mean I'm I'm not particularly quote unquote politically minded. So a lot of my work is sort of more based on my own emotional responses to the statement and then sort of associated themes around it and around what it means to be an Aboriginal person in a sort of post-colonial world, not so (laughs) post-colonial world at times. Yeah, Yeah. but I, I mean, I didn't take a particular political stance because, to be honest, I don't profess to be someone who really understands the ins and outs of things. But that's actually one of the biggest benefits for me of working alongside Elizabeth because Elizabeth is really clued up on all of this and I've learned a lot from her. It's been such a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you. Thank you. For coming into the studio to to talk about the Songs from the Heart. Of course, its first performance has not yet occurred, but we are able to hear a couple of little extracts from rehearsals which will give us a, a sense of where your music's going. Elizabeth Shepherd, Sonia Hollowell, thanks very much. Thanks so much. Thank you.
That was some rehearsal recording from Songs from the Heart and we heard a little of Elizabeth Shepherd's Mialgin Teardrops and before that, some of Sonia Hollowell's This is the Torment of Our Powerlessness. Details of the song company's Songs from the Heart tour, as ever, on The Music Show's website. You're listening to The Music Show. Alex G is something of an enigma. His real name is Alex Janiscoli, and over the last 12 years, he has built up a considerable fan base with a considerable body of work, mostly from his home in Philadelphia. He writes all the songs himself, he plays most of the instruments, and he certainly does most of the singing. And now we're at album number nine. It's called God Save the Animals. It's his fourth for a major label, and it's his first that involved actual recording studios and other engineers. It's more polished, as you might expect, but it's just as eclectic and textured as the ones that have come before it. We'll talk to him shortly. He's going to perform something for us live. But let's get a taster of the album itself first. This is Miracles. I see great waves coming away Beautiful sunset and lonely days Infinite futures Come a single past Everyone whimpers Nobody After all, there's 
crosses, miracles and 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 crosses, yeah. That's a song called Miracles, and it's the work of Alex G. It comes from his new album, God Save the Animals. It's a pleasure to welcome him to the music show. How are you doing, Alex? Good. Thanks for having me. Maybe you could take us just through that song that we've heard, through the instrumentation, the arrangement, the production, because this is a studio album, isn't it, in the way that your previous albums aren't? It is, and... At the same time, I guess it's kind of similar to my previous albums because although I recorded everything in a, in different studios, I would take the tracks home with me and then spend a lot of time editing them and overdubbing them the same way I would if uh, I was just recording it at home. This song went through actually a couple different versions. Uh, it changed a lot of times. But it's me playing a couple acoustic guitar tracks, the drums, bass, and organ. And uh, I have my partner, Molly Germer. She uh, arranged and performed the violin parts that you hear coming in and out. It's interesting that at the point in, in our history where just about every musician in the world retreated to their bedroom you who you know are famous for working from home ventured out to studios <laughs> did you think at the time that this was a certain irony in this you know i i totally see the irony now i guess i i had a lot of time on my hands so it seemed like a great opportunity to experiment in a real recording studio and take advantage of all this free time i guess like Normally we'd be on tour most of the year. And so I wouldn't have had faith in, you know, jumping into a new studio setting and making it work. But since we had all this time off, I was like, oh, I can experiment in the studio and, and fail a couple of times and maybe eventually get it right. And you also had, uh, you know, half a dozen engineers who had nothing else to do as well. What were you looking for, do you think? In, as far as the sound was concerned, why did you want to, to change the way you worked on this album? I guess it seemed like the next place to go as far as keeping it interesting for myself. Yeah, I guess I had done everything I could do with my microphone and my laptop, like that old method. So I was just chasing something new. I, I didn't really know what it was. Were you maybe after a different perspective? Because often we hear from, particularly from singers, songwriters, that when they go into a studio with a producer, that they it's the other pair of ears that is the most important thing to them. It did give me a, a sense of, you know, I'm on the clock and someone else is listening. So I, I have to make the different takes count, you know, and I can't just uh, needlessly experiment, at least while I'm there. So mm. at least my takes done in the studio, they were all a little more purposeful and less 
meandering like maybe they would be at home. Oh, that's interesting. It's all your <laughs> the way you describe it. It's almost uh, like you have an audience there uh, in in this engineer. It's almost as though this is therefore kind of a live album. Yeah, it it felt like a live album because I think I was improvising a lot of the takes and then getting snippets of the best moments. I don't think the engineer intends to be a, like an audience. I think I think the idea is that they are behind the scenes and you're supposed to forget they're there, but obviously I I wasn't accustomed to it, so to me it felt like an audience. <laughs> yes, you see them through the glass. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, was that good? And they don't care. <laughs> they're just hitting the button. <laughs> Do you think much about people who listen to your music? Uh, you know, your your regular listeners, uh, I imagine you hear from them. But does it matter to you, for example, how people listen to your music? Um, I don't think about that very much. I guess I I wouldn't want anyone listening to it as a joke because it's so bad, it's funny. I would feel humiliated if that was the case. But otherwise, I don't really mind how they listen to it. And... Of course, they don't just listen to it, they interpret it. I suppose this is true of anybody listening to any kind of song, but it's particularly true uh, in the case of the, your fans. You know, they they assign meanings, don't they? There are online forums where people chuck around theories, uh, some of them obviously completely off the mark. What do you think about that? Does it amuse you? Does it annoy you? You know, at this point in my life I, I do my best to not read that stuff I guess in the past which shouldn't bother me but what did sometimes bother me is if someone who's kind of preaching to other people like oh no this is what he meant this is exactly what he was saying and if it's if it's not what I was saying then it's frustrating because that person's kind of taking the reins but um, it's not like I have a clear idea in my mind of what I'm saying in any of the songs so I guess it's cool that people do that as well, but I don't like people to limit themselves to like one interpretation because I feel like that's not the point of the no. music. Listening to God Save the Animals, I mean, the, the production is really very beautiful, I think, and obviously very detailed. And I'd like to ask a little more about some of the things you do in production, but before we get there, you've recorded especially for us a track from the album Runner and this is very pared down thank you for doing that let's listen to it now Trigger like the back of my 
I have done a couple bad things Yes, I have done a couple bad things Yes, I have done a couple bad things Yes, I have done a couple bad things Hold it up, on your trigger like the back of mine Hold it up, know your trigger like the back of mine Hold it up, know your trigger That's Alex G and a version of his song Runner that he made specially for the music show. You're listening to the music show and I'm speaking to Alex G from his home in Philadelphia. And we're talking about his new album, God Save the Animals, and that's one of the songs from it. But it doesn't sound like that on the album. Alex, maybe we could talk a little about the way in which you use your voice, because there we heard it you know, uh, um, unadorned. And the voice is often buried in the texture of the instruments anyway, isn't it? It's almost as though it's another instrument. It's not uh, It's not always uh, up front in the way that it clearly was on that song that we just listened to. Right, yeah, that that song, Runner, was was kind of new territory for me, just trying to make a very uh, traditional song. Even on the record, that was kind of an experiment putting the vocals up front and, you know, restricting myself to, like, traditional instruments. What's a couple Very often there are sort of manipulations involved in the production of your songs, which send your voice very high. Why do you do that? Hmm, I I guess it's mostly just an aesthetic choice, like the decision to make the guitar distorted or clean or like, you know, use this keyboard sound instead of this keyboard sound. It, it's like something that I feel might complement the music better. That's most of the time. And then I guess otherwise, maybe it will add to the character of the speaker of the song or something, like depending on what the lyrics are, maybe it's better suited to like a childish voice or something. Let's talk about the lyrics. There are a lot of references to God on this album, uh, not just in the title, God Save the Animals, but 
uh, also uh, in quite a lot of the songs. We talked not so long ago to the Melbourne singer Grace Cummings and uh, she had her new album out, Storm Queen, and there were a lot of references to God there, and I asked her about it, and she said that it wasn't exactly God, that the word for her represented something big and unknown, and she doesn't necessarily believe in a God. And I wonder whether it's something similar for you. What's your relationship with this word? I guess I was more thinking about what it represents to other people and potentially the listener more so than what it meant to myself. Because I don't really know what it means. Yeah, I don't really have a good answer for it for myself. But I guess I like that it has a lot of significance in society and culture and whatever. So it seemed like it would be a good word to throw around. (laughs) (laughs) That interests me. It interests me that you write with your listeners in mind because my impression of your songs is that they are personal, that they come from you and that it almost wouldn't matter whether people, other people listen to them or not. But what you're saying here is that you're specifically addressing an audience. You know, it's, this sounds like a cop-out, but it's honestly hard to say what I'm doing or like who I'm addressing when I'm trying to record these songs I mean, I, I definitely have an audience in mind because I, I know that it's not in a vacuum. You know, I'd, I'd be deluding myself if I, if I said I, I'm just making it for me and I'm not aware of the audience that's going to listen to it. What about working uh, on the movie We're All Going to the World's Fair? Because here you are in a different context, not exactly writing to order perhaps, but still scoring uh, a, a film these are not songs which are necessarily coming to you. They're coming via the imagination of the director, Jane Schoenbrunn. So was that different? It was different and uh, it was a fun uh, challenge. I guess I was just getting to flex the craft of recording, you know, without having to really mine for any uh, emotional substance because Jane had already established all that was it liberating maybe in a way it was because i could uh freely experiment without any uh i guess they the songs they're mine but i didn't feel tied to them so personally so i could just really go off in one direction and maybe it worked and maybe it didn't but it was yeah it was liberating to make certain like ambient songs that I didn't feel have to be entertaining every second because the movie is what is doing the heavy lifting and my stuff is just there to complement the movie, you know. We're going to finish with another track from uh, the album. What should it be, Alex? Uh, How about Forgive? Alex G, thank you very much indeed for being my guest on The Music Show. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me. I I appreciate it.
Alex G and Forgive from his album God Save the Animals. Next time on The Music Show, composer Anne Boyd is heading to Central Australia for the premiere of her opera Olive Pink. It's a portrait of that woman, a flawed character who was both a botanical artist and also an activist. And we'll chat to Peter Knight, who after 10 years is leaving the Australian Art Orchestra and to prove it, he has a solo album. It's called Shadow Phase. Shadow Phase.